History Lecture 92, Rabbi Blyweiss. Um, so Shabtai Tzvi was a, uh, I don't know if you picked up everything at the end, we got quite a lot in at the, at the end of um, yesterday, but um, this was a uh, cataclysm, just a national, devastating nationally. And what it did to Jews, and we're going to see now, it wasn't just at the time. It'll have a long-term residual uh, impact, um, almost entirely negatively. There may be some, some little bit of a positive, uh, but, but basic, basically all, most basically not. Um, especially when we find that many, many people will continue to believe the Shabtai was the Mashiach. And as we said, there are those who in the world today, uh, 400 years, not quite 400 years later, who continue to believe that he is the Mashiach. We called it the Dunmen. They live in Turkey mostly, and they, they, they descend. I mean, they may be actually direct descendants of his, or certainly his immediate followers. They, um, what's going to be even worse is because increasingly it's going to be controversial, it's going to be problematic. You admit that you believe in Shabtai Tzvi, you'll be vilified for doing so, so they go underground. And we're going to see increasingly there's going to be a new uh, lack of trust that emerges between Jews that creates immense schism, factiousness. Uh, and arguably today, you look around the world, it's so diverse. Um, this is at least one of the pieces that will contribute to the uh, breakdown of unity in Klal Yisrael. Uh, you don't know. Your neighbors seem like such nice, upstanding people. You don't know exactly what they stand for, who they are. And they have that funny behavior. And they study Kabbalah. Do you think they could be? Don't know. Uh, this, this tears people apart. As we're going to see, it's going to tear Medoli Yisrael apart certainly the common people. Um, now, Sabetsky had a bunch of what he called minhagim, we would call them strange behaviors, but uh, they catch on. If you go today to the Spanish-Portuguese shul in Amsterdam, uh, they still dochen. Dochening is the kohanim with the bracha that we do in Eretz Yisrael, but it's not the minhagim chutzlarets, but they dochen according to the minhagim of Sabetsky. You remember that Amsterdam was deeply influenced by him. Uh, there would be increasing debate and suspicion surrounding the whole area of, of Kabbalah and who can study it and who can practice it and who, where is this legitimate. We now can appreciate the danger in the wrong hands uh, the, um, and, and, a, and a new mistrust grows towards an area that we associate also with people who reach the highest level of learning. And uh, we're going to meet several such individuals uh, in the coming generations we're going to meet the Ramchal, the Vilna Gaon, and really a long list of a preeminent Mikubalim, but there will rise many others as well. And the use of Kabbalah for nefarious uh, ends is going to increase. The, uh, we, because we saw that there were leaders, rabbinic leaders even, who fell under the influence of Shabtai's feet to some degree, and how much might be debated, and we could try to be Malam and Schus, but clearly they were associated. Uh, if, they could, if they didn't affirm him, we also saw that many rabbis were, had no recourse. They were incapable of dealing with him. And with the, uh, the, the support that was, that was ecstatic in some circles, and they feared for their own safety, 
And what we see starting to happen is a new trend that's devastating too, which is an erosion in rabbinic authority. Rabbis, they can't do anything. Now you could argue, you could counter and say, come on, that's not Shabbat Tzvi's fault. That was something that was a process that was at work in the, in the world for hundreds of years leading up to this anyway, and would only increase with the Enlightenment and with the modern, modern secularization that we don't trust any authorities. After all, remember, we just mentioned Baruch Spinoza as being somebody who went against organized religion philosophically and he explained why you can't trust those elitist religious types. They're, gonna, they're corrupt. They're in it for their own power and prestige. Uh, so I would agree with you. These are all pieces of the puzzle. But it doesn't help when you have an international crisis of this nature, this dimension, and the rabbis simply couldn't. They weren't capable of of really uh, taking charge in a way that would put out the fire. The, uh, it, it was beyond anybody's ability. Um, I think this is extremely, incredibly important because we see different, some of them very parallel, but some of them very different uh, in manifestation. We see conflicts in really holy places. I mean, there is a terrible conflict in some of the great yeshivas of the world today. Uh, over who's in charge and how that's supposed to work. We've alluded to that. We'll talk about that here too. And uh, in front of it, yeah, that's pretty present. Uh, that's very present. But I, I find, listen, I don't, I'm going to tell you whatever I can tell you about Panovich. It's devastating what's going on there. It's the word of the day, I guess. But I, I don't have an easy explanation for what it is. It seems to me, and I just talked to somebody who, who understands these things, uh, specifically Panovich much better than I do. He has kids who've been there, he knows the people, he knows the players about. And from his mouth, I can, I can quote and say, there are absolute Rashaim who are involved in that. And their behavior, sadly, is influential and they're able to, 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 to do terrible things. But, you know, I'm, I'm not as, let's say, traumatized when I see what's going on in, in Panovich today, when I think in a historical context, this is not new. The fact that Jews have difficulty getting along, the, the fact that rabbinic authorities, the fact that there was a base team that actually paskined what to do with Panovich, and came out with a psaac that was then summarily ignored, well, that's not the first time that they ignored rabbinic authority. And we see the erosion at hand, and we're going to see it today, certainly, uh, with, with some of the great names of, uh, of, of history, and they're trying to weigh in and, and, and uh, help out the crisis and... Uh, how that will often backfire. There will be, as a direct result, um, new movements that arise. Part of it, out of the disillusionment with the contemporary status quo of uh, Jewish leadership, um, some of it will come out of frustration at the ongoing exile and the place of the Jews, the anti in the world, the anti-Semitism that doesn't debate. So we're going to see the rise of reform, secularism, Zionism, secular Zionism. Uh, and many other movements that are absolutely direct offshoots of all of these phenomena. There's an Yiddish expression. It goes like this. Always, always good to hear, hear it in Yiddish. Mibritzaf, I have to pronounce correctly. Mibritzaf hesa blost minafkalta, which effectively means if you've been burnt once by a hot pot, you'll blow even when it's cold. There's always subtlety and nuance in these in these uh, these expressions. You're blown when it's cold. Once you've been burnt by one false messiah, and we've, this is not the first one, but this is certainly a, a 
one who leaves his mark, so then Jews become increasingly jaded, mistrusted. Yeah? Tell me who you are. You're Mashiach? One imagines Mashiach coming today and understandably getting a good grilling by skeptical people who've been burnt once by a hot pot and twice and three times. Now, uh, back to our narrative as we see what, what, what continues to go on. In the early 17th century, the Rizal had several students who moved to Hebron, among them the Reishis Chochma, who I mentioned. Uh, he's buried there. And uh, Hebron, we haven't heard so much about, correct? Hebron, Hebron's not been so active for years. We know that there were tiny, there were tiny enclaves of Jews who lived there through the centuries. But now it's going to be increasingly a Torah center. And we know that in 1659, exactly the time where Shabtai Tzvi is starting to get very active, um, they, uh, they build a shul established by Svartim from Amsterdam called the Chesed Lavram Yeshiva. And uh, it's in the place, of, have you been to Hebron? Where they have what they call the Avram Shul, that's where they, they built this Yeshiva. In four, four years later, in 1663, Shabtai Tzvi visits the Yeshiva and visits Hebron, and he's greeted with great fanfare. They're very positive, including the rabbinic leaders in Hebron in the day. Uh, and Shabtai Tzvi mesmerizes everybody and influences most of them. Um, even after his death, Hebron is a center of Shabtai Tzvi uh, following. All this is happening. And meanwhile, there are the Gedolim who are alive in these days, and uh, some of their lives will be touched by, all, uh, by, by what we're talking about. Um, it, around this time, between uh, 1633 and 1683, lived Rav Avram Gombiner, who is yet another one of these uh, primary names in the area of halacha. His book is called The Magen Abraham. He too, we hear about him all the time. He's on the pages of the Shulchan Aruch. He was born in Kalish in Poland. He lost both of his parents in Tachbetat. So all these issues that we're talking about in theory, sometimes when we meet the uh, individual people, it becomes more real when we think, wow, Magen Abraham, he was, he, was a, he was a survivor, a victim of Tachbetat. In his commentary on Orach Chaim, it includes, it's one of the, it's, it's up there at the top of the page of the standard edition of the Shulchan Aruch. It's known for including, for incorporating a number of Polish minhagim. Poland now has been a strong Jewish community for a few centuries at this point. Uh, it also, uh, he brings in, and he's one of the innovators in this, he brings in a lot of uh, Torah from the Arizal, including a lot of Kabbalah, and as well as Kabbalah that he, and, and, and Halacha that he cites in the name of the Shla HaKadosh. So both, both will figure prominently in his, in his Sak Halacha. A couple of interesting discussions. Um, these are early days in the history of tobacco in the Western world, or the European, Eurocentric Western world, I should say. Uh, tobacco coming, having one of, the, in one of the crops that was brought back from, uh, from the New World, from the Americas. And um, as it's becoming more of a phenomenon in the societies, uh, people start smoking this tobacco in pipes, water pipes sometimes. And Magir Baham Paskins that uh, such, uh, taking from such, uh, smoking this tobacco would require a bracha. person gets hanah from it, and uh, there was a novelty to the whole thing, but he, he paskin that it would, it would require a bracha. That's not a psak that uh, other post accepted. 
that it's not you're not consuming anything, and so the, the idea was rejected. But uh, interesting interesting discussion there. Um, he has another tshuva where he's asked about um, in, in, back in the day, aliyahs to the Torah were given to Talmud. Yeah, something. About the? Well, yeah, you know what? There's a major discussion. Another, another phenomenon. I, I have a shear on this in another, in another, uh, another time. But around this time, also, they brought back turkey. Turkey's a big deal. It's right. I mean, to give a to give it an inadequate summary, the issue with turkey is uh, it was. Um, not one of the traditional birds, and the way we know we can eat birds fowl in terms of our tradition is if we have a masara for it. Well, turkey was introduced. We didn't have a masara by definition, and yet within a hundred years, everybody was eating this new food, this new bird. And so there's a whole question about how that's possible that we discuss in modern poski. But yeah, for sure, all of these discoveries will certainly have an impact in, in Jewish life. Um, I was going to get into another area, another tube of the Magen Abraham. He uh, Usually, he gave an aliyah, when you're reading the Torah, to Tamani Chachamim, but he comes up with, a, at the time it's a novel psaac, today it's very accepted, is we give aliyahs to people in honoring personal events, even if the individuals themselves are not Tamani Chachamim, but if you're getting married, or if you're to honor, in honor of births, uh, around a yard site, uh, he said, you don't always have to give aliyahs to the Torah, to a Talmud Chacham. Uh, this would be a good psaac for anybody, let's say, who was a gabai or even a skan gabai to hold by. The, um, he's actually, his discussion is the, fir- the earliest discussion we have for wearing tzitzit out, which the Mishnaburah eventually will bring in his name, in the name of the Megabraham, and this is what uh, Ashkenazi Jews must do. There's, there are dissenting opinions. But um, because the style of dress also changes in modernity, we no longer formally wore garments that had for garments necessarily. So people now are starting to wear underneath their garments uh, talit katan, uh, with of course stringing stringing the four four uh, uh, tzitzit tassels on the four corners. And as a result, uh, you know you might not be seeing your mitzvah. Which of course is the purpose, as the Pasuk says, Urisim, so you should see them as a way of reminding yourself of Hashem and to keep his mitzvahs. And so he poskins you should indeed wear these strings out. But life events, though, you said that birthdays are not included, though? Uh, birthdays don't seem to have, I mean, other than being a so nafkamina, a, a boy becomes bar mitzvah, or you, you know, you become a certain age for certain, uh, when we talk about the different ages uh, for different qualities bench uh, and 20 year olds go to the army 60 year olds are no longer useful and and, and other various uh, statements but uh, as a celebration it's not a, it's not something that Jews historically we find doing we find Paro celebrating his birthday but from the exception one proves one can one can perhaps uh, uh, deduce the rule that it's not not a particularly Jewish thing um, even though in the modern world people tend to like to celebrate themselves and birthdays are a nice excuse to do so. Um, he rules that daytime lasts from dawn to nightfall. And so you have, of course, Sosman Kriyeshma, according to the Megen Abraham. You've heard of such a thing before, right? Versus the Minaga Gra, which is more lenient. The, uh, the Gra rules that daytime lasts from sunrise to sunset, and therefore the calculation will come out differently. I say more lenient because the, the Magen Abraham's 
Sosma and Kriyashma in the morning will be um, earlier, uh, within an hour or so earlier uh, of the Vilna Gaon, the, of, the, of the Graz calculation. He learns from the Gemara in Ksubos. Gemara says that walking Dalit Amos in Eretz Yisrael will win you kapara, you'll, you'll be atoned for your sins. So he understands, he, he cites this as a, as a day, as an opinion, that visiting Eretz Yisrael, even, less than, even for a period of less than 30 days, is a fulfillment of the mitzvah of living in Eretz Yisrael, in which case, how long were your, was your family staying in town? Two weeks. Will, will they be walking um, four cubits at any point during their visit? So the Magen Abraham raises an interesting possibility that now that they're here, they can't leave. Of course, having fulfilling, uh, fulfilled the mitzvah, the Arisa, what is your excuse now to stop fulfilling that mitzvah? And that may have been Hashgach uh, Prati said, um, I said this particular point before their arrival in this class so that they can continue to keep Barak, our beloved Barak, in our uh, yeshiva. Okay, all, all is always Hashgach Pratis in this world. Um, among the, comment, uh, among the uh, commentaries on the Magen Abraham will be later great sources, the Prima Godli and the Machzat Shekel. Um, his students include the Elia Rabba, who, wrote, who writes a commentary on the Lavush. So, uh, okay. It's around 1660, some say it might be 1662, that local Druze, Druze spelled D-R-U-Z-E, not to be confused with Jews, even though they sound very similar. Druze are actually an offshoot of Shiite Islam, although they deny any connection with Islam, and Islam certainly denies any connection with Druze, but historically that's where they uh, come from. And um, they live in various villages in and around Eretz Israel. Uh, today, one thinks of the Druze as a benign or even very positive force. They serve in the government. They serve in the army. They're among the, the uh, some of them have been decorated soldiers in, Israelis arm, in, in the Israeli army. But they have not always been very kind to us. And in, in 1660 or so, um, the Druze will descend upon Sfas and Tiberia, these great cities, and destroy them and massacre Jews uh, in the cities. Uh, those survivors, those few survivors to, uh, to, to make it through the massacre flee, and later on, only a few return. Now, Tzfas was at its heyday, its peak, in the late 16th century when we met all these great names and there was a Torah center. There were estimated as many as 15,000 Jews in Tzfas back in the heyday, and now it's, 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 it's quite decimated. Later, it'll be rebuilt. Tiberia doesn't fare much better. This is the time, and Aaron, you asked about this the other day, uh, that uh, around this time is, is when um, one hears about Rabbi Yehuda Chosid. Um, maybe it's a little bit out of sequence. I mean, I should put this a little bit later. But okay, I'll tell the story now. In any case, I'm weaving all these different stri- uh, strands together to form a general picture um, Rabbi Yehuda Chosid, not to be confused with Rabbi Yehuda HaChosid, who we met a few centuries ago, one of the Hasidic Ashkenaz, uh, one of the Bali Tosfos who were uh, studied Kabbalah. So this is not, the, not, not a person of the same stature. The reason why he's well known is because of his unusual story and the shul that, we, that was built in his memory. Um, he was a preacher from a little village called um, Scheidlitz in eastern Poland, who, what's his claim to fame? 
he leads the largest organized aliyah, group of Jews moving to Eretz Israel since the days of Bar Kokhba. That's a good one to put on your resume. Now, what's going on in Eretz Israel in Palestine? At this point, the main Jewish population in Palestine is Sephardi. Remember, we learned about an exceptional individual, the Shlaka, those who comes. Uh, he doesn't lead a large Ashkenazi aliyah, uh, but he comes and he moves to, to Yerushalayim before he's forced in, to, to move up to Tiberia uh, for the end of his life. But most of the Jews in the predominantly the four holy cities and a few other villages dotting the landscape um, are from the Sephardi community. They tend to do they tend to do much better. They know how to get along with Muslims better than Ashkenazim. After all, many Sephardim have been living in Muslim-ruled lands, and they know how to do it. When I say that, for example, uh, Muslims don't like competition. Remember the idea of supersessionism? They, like the Christians, believe that they've replaced the Jews. They've superseded the Jews. We don't need Jews anymore. So they don't like the competition. So everybody in the Sephardi shuls, the four, the four Sephardi shuls in the old city, near the parking lot in the Jewish quarter, you picture that? So one of the things that's sort of characteristic there is that they're built low down, inconspicuous, not calling attention to themselves. That's a good uh, metaphor for how the Sephardi populations knew how to get along under Muslim dominance. You kind of stayed beneath the radar, did your own thing, paid your own taxes, and they left you alone, more or less, sometimes less, but uh, they, they tended to, do, to fare better. Uh, Ashkenazi, not as much, yeah. But there were Jews in our four in the Holy City, so? I said the four, what's called the four synagogues today. Oh, no, no, but then you said uh, the, the Sephardic Jewry. At this point, at this, not just Sephardi, but generally in Eretz Israel, if you find Jews around, most of them are Sephardi, whatever that might mean. Right, right. We, we've said before, it's too, we're right. using the term Sephardi like it's used today, often incorrectly, but broadly, to refer to most non-Ashkenazi Jews. But we realize, who's Sephardi? Who does that include? Well, it's the whole Maghreb, North Africa. And then you got Jews around the Middle East. But you know, there's a world of difference between Jews from Syria versus Jews from Iraq or Persia or Yemen. And then what about all the European Sephardi, those in Amsterdam or Italy or maybe in Turkey and elsewhere in the world? We're talking about a lot of different and often not unified communities themselves, that's who we're referring to. They're in the four holy cities. They're certainly in Yerushalayim. They wax and they wane, as we saw in Tzvat and Tiberia just now, that they, they go through different phases and different different uh, periods of difficulties. Um, they're mostly, most of the Jews are in the north, in the Galilee area. So uh, that's what Eretz Yisrael looks like right now. Uh, we know that at this point, the Torah, big Torah names, there, there, are, other, there are a lot of Torah names, and some of them are Sephardi, but the, the increasingly one finds the bigger yeshivas and the center of gravity of Torah has shifted towards Eastern Europe. And that's where Rabbi Yudah Hasid finds himself. And they don't have much of a presence in Eretz Yisrael. And so Rabbi Yudah Hasid goes around, he's a preacher, and he's charismatic, and he's able to speak very, very powerfully about the importance of being in Eretz Yisrael. And guess what images he draws on? What's going on? What's on people's minds in the 17th century, in the 1600s? What are Jews thinking and talking about all the time? And I'll give you a hint. With the advent of Shabtai Tzvi, they're messianic. And even, let's say, the people who have had nothing to do with Shabtai Tzvi, who reject Shabtai Tzvi, but they'd like Mashiach to come too. They're also looking towards an end to their suffering, 
And the themes of Mashiach are very much in the air. And of course, we understand that part of what happens when Mashiach comes is there's going to be a kibbutz galios, there's going to be an ingathering of exiles. So he goes around and talks about that and tells people, let's go. And it's not a new message. We heard it, we heard it in the days of the Kuzari of Rabbi Huda Levi. Uh, but it's a particularly timely message, and he finds an audience. And in 1697, he'd raised enough money to send messengers down to Eretz Yisrael, down to Palestine, to pay the local Turks to start building a community. And um, in, 19, in 1697, he and 31 families leave. They originally go to Nicholsburg and Moravia, which are places in today's Czech, uh, Czech Republic. Uh, they also gather Jews from German villages, and eventually they amass a group of some 1,500 followers, although some people debate the numbers, but let's say it's around 1,500 people. It's pretty, pretty impressive. And they sell everything that they own and sign up for this mission of a lifetime. Let's go make Aliyah. Let's go live in Eretz Israel, keep the Torah, keep the mitzvot, and thereby perhaps bring the Mashiach. And um, Sorry, it's a true. By all means, is welcome to join. Hello, welcome. Um, we're just we're in, we're in Eretz Yisrael in the uh, late 1600s, and um, there are Baruch Hashem some a few dotting dotting the landscape, Sephardi communities, and the Ashkenazim now come in the largest Aliyah since the days of Bar Kokhba, and they set sail, they leave, and um, every bad. Misfortune occurs to them on the way. They're beset by pirates, by disease. They're, they lose their money. They, um, many turn back. Uh, horrific stories. And um, they estimate about 500 people died en route from various, uh, various misadventures. One of the boats sunk. Um, finally, in 1700, three years later, um, they enter Eretz Yisrael, and of course, if you're part of the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, it's Israel, so you got to pay the necessary bakshish, the bribery. And by this point, they're deeply in debt because whatever money they managed to save in selling their own homes and whatever they had was either stolen for them or they had to pay it off to some, uh, to su to some official. And so they come in bedraggled and they make it to Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, kissing the stones as they arrive and they're there and they find uh, what had already been built, a shul, and some 40 homes, and a mikveh, and the basic infrastructure of a Jewish community right there in what, right there in the middle of today, we call it the Jewish quarter, uh, where that big, beautiful, newish shul that has a story attached to it stands today. Uh, it didn't stand a few years ago, and that's an interesting story too. In any case, um, they come, and uh, they, it was, as we say, immense mysterious nefesh, but they made it. What do they find? They come to Yerushalayim. There are about 200 Ashkenazi Jews and about 1,000 Sephardi Jews living in Yerushalayim. And um, they arrive in October of, of 1700, and it's a crisis. Because you talk about a relatively struggling community. It's not like they were well off in Jerusalem to begin with. Suddenly, you, you have an influx of some 500 to 1,000 new Jews and among other things, there's no food. There was barely any food for the original settlers, so the people now coming in, very hard to have hospitality. To add to the problem, there are political issues. 
See, some of the people on board, almost certainly not Rabbi Yudah Hasid, who indeed was a righteous Jew, to the best that we can assess, um, but there are some people who are definitely followers of Shabtai Tzvi, which makes sense to us. We just finished yesterday, we just saw one of the greatest debacles of all time, uh, this, this, this terrible travesty of Shabtai Tzvi, the false messiah, who even after his conversion to Islam and his death, um, people, people still believed in him. And these are still the days, you can imagine that a lot of Shabtai Tzvi followers, uh, adherents, would want to join the bandwagon and come to Eretz Yisrael. So now, the people who are living in Yerushalayim don't trust the new, arrival, the, the, the new arrivals. Who are you people? And why exactly are you coming? And, and um, it's not entirely harmonious. The first Arab Shabbos, the leader, Rabbi Yehuda himself, goes to the mikvah. And it was there that he contracts a virus, and he becomes sick, and he becomes very sick. And he's so sick, that um, he apparently loses his mind. He doesn't recognize people around him. Um, he says, remember what, he, remember, remember what he's saying the whole time? Uh, not Torah in general. He, everything that came out of his mouth, he listened to him closely. It was all Pesukah de Zimra. Psalms, um, Tehillim that we say in the, uh, in the morning. And um, which I like to illustrate is a beautiful idea that, uh, that you know, you... Some people, when they lose their mind in their, in their old age, what you, sometimes they call it Tourette's syndrome, um, what comes out are profanities. But when you take a holy Jew and you remove all the layers and all the, all the superficialities, what you had at, at core with Pesukah de Zimra was, was spirituality. That was true in his case. Um, within a few days, he passed away. Now, picture this. You've just sold all of your life's possessions. You've come to Eretz Yisrael on the coat, on the coat strings of, the, uh, of, of your leader, of a great charismatic leader. The community is devastated and broke. They've got creditors coming around, the Turks who are asking to pay up their debts. They don't have the money. The calamity takes on a new dimension of hardship. They hadn't raised all the money. See, a lot of people back in Europe had agreed they're not going to join this whole group, but they realized this group is moving to Eretz Yisrael as a proxy for us, for all of Klal Yisrael. They're going to help pave the way for Mashiach. We're going to pay them for that. We're going to contribute huge sums. And especially, I don't know if you give money, but when you give money, don't you feel good when you give to a solid person you feel you can rely on? That solid person, Rabbi Yudah Hasid, when word got back to Europe that he had died, many of the donors, or the so-called donors, um, said, well, we're not giving our money anymore. There's nobody around that we trust that we can, get, we can entrust our money to. So now the financial crisis becomes extremely acute. It's a disaster. Uh, and the Arab creditors are coming around, and they start persecuting the Jews, most of the Jews. The Sephardi Jews stay, stay to themselves, so they remain distinct. The Ashkenazi Jews have little recourse. And finally, 20 years of hardship. Uh, I have in a diary of one of the members of the community, I have a discussion of the very the corruption of the Ottoman regime in those days, and the, the terrible hardship that the Jews had living back then. And by 7, 1720, the creditors had had enough. And they break into the shul, they burn it down, they take over the whole area, what you can picture today in the center of the Jewish quarter, um, and then they present the members of the Ashkenazi Jews who are still around with the classic historical three options. What are the three options in history? Yeah. 
you can convert to Islam in this case, often it was to Christianity, in this case it was Islam, uh, you could leave or we're going to kill you. And um, the community is wiped out. And um, the Turks decide that all Ashkenazim are to blame. Interestingly, the Sephardi community is not blamed. They're able to live in their own little quarter and, and uh, again, not, not, not easily, but they manage. Um, if we were to visit Yerushalayim in the next century, over the, ne over the course of the next century, during the 1700s, well into the 1800s, we would be immediately beset, if we were, if we were Ashkenazi, we would be immediately beset by Turkish creditors saying, pay up. I'd say, but I'm just a little guy named Menashe Blyweiss. I don't even know where the Yudafasid. I have no connection whatsoever. They said, doesn't matter. It's part of your people. You have this debt. Uh, it'll take all the way to one of the students of the Vilna Gaon, of Menachem Mendel of Shklov, who comes with a group that are called the Prushim uh, a century later. He raises the money, and he finally pays up a debt that's not his. But in order for Ashkenazi Jews to live there, that was what was necessary to do. Um, maybe I should jump to the present. The shul would be rebuilt uh, in, the, uh, in the 1850s, it's very brief. Uh, it'll be rebuilt, and this time they raise a lot of money. Now you have the Rothschilds on board, so they build the base Yaakov, named for one of the Rothschild uh, patrons. Uh, the, the base Yaakov shul, which is the, not only the shul of the Middle East, but the most beautiful building in the whole Middle East, yeah. Yeah, you bet, you bet. Say it again. They were an international banking family that will work, not today, but we're gonna get to soon enough in this class. Not, they were certainly French, but what they were actually written, Rothschild originally was German. Um, and he sent five of his sons to different cities around Europe, France being one of them, and one of the more successful ones. That's where James, that's where Yaakov, and then his son, Ad Edmund de Rothschild. With Baron, the Baron Rothschild. The Baron Rothschild has a huge impact in Eretz Israel, and whose story we told when we went to Muscarid Bachi, if you remember that. Right, we talked a lot about the Rothschilds. So they're definitely France, but they're also in England, and they're in Italy, and they're in Germany. They're in lots of, they have their, their finger in a lot of pies, and they will become one of the great uh, banking families, of, of the first international banking family of the world, you can really argue. In any case, um, it was under, the, they, they uh, certainly uh, had a major piece in this new, new community, this new synagogue that was the most gorgeous building in all of the Middle East. And you can imagine how the Arabs felt about it, and therefore you can imagine uh, in the War of Independence in 1948, when the fighting broke out in the old city, it's one of the first targets, and it's bombed, and, and, and effectively mostly destroyed. Um, and then in 68, in 67, Six Day War, we get the old city, we get Yerushalayim back, uh, and the mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Kalik, with the limited funds, decides not to spend a penny on the korva except to put up an old arch above the destroyed shul, and everybody passed it and called it, and, and, and they looked at it and they said, Tusk, tusking, tusking under the breath, and saying, what a shame the shul was destroyed until um, somebody got a tour of the area, like the one I gave some of you a few weeks ago, and um, said, but wait a minute, isn't the halacha that if a Jewish synagogue is destroyed, the Jews, to the best of their ability, should try to rebuild it? To which the tour guide said, yeah. So they did. And a few years ago, they rebuilt the, uh, the now it's ironically called the Churva Shul, but you realize that's an oxymoron. A Churva is a destroyed shul. So you can't call a rebuilt shul a Churva Shul. 
It's called really the Beis Yaakov officially, and uh, beautiful, and it's today a place of, of uh, davening and, um, and learning, and, um, and you, you can get an occasional tour, and if you do, go up to the very top, and you walk around the dome, and you see all of Yerushalayim, and it's spectacular. Um, but meanwhile, back in the uh, late 1700s, we meet Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi. Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi, his dates are 1656 to 1718. If he was born in 1656, that meant he was but a wee lad in Salonika, where he grew up, Salonika in Greece. And who was in Salonika for a period of time? Do you remember yesterday? Shabtai. Shabtai Tzvi was there, and he saw it all. And as a child, it really left an impression on Chacham Tzvi uh, Ashkenazi to the point that that became one of his life passions, even though he became one of the greatest uh, gedolim of the time, but his passion was very much informed by uh, fighting Shabtai Tzvi and the lasting impact of it. Um, he grew into becoming such a great Talmud Chacham. Salonika was mostly a Sephardi community, as his name implies, he was Ashkenazi, Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi, appropriately enough. And they, uh, the local Sephardim gave him a term for this, 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 uh, this young Ilui, this prodigy. They gave him a, a, an expression of affection and honor. Uh, what is a gadol in many Sephardi communities called? Chacham, or Chacham Bashi. So they called him, they gave him a Sephardi title, Chacham Tzvi, that was so touching to him that he kept it. That's why it's very unusual that an Ashkenazi would be called Chacham, but that's why he's called the Chacham Tzvi. Hello, Rabbi Blyweiss. I'd like to introduce you to two of the Queen's loyal servants. Okay. This is my friend Rafi. Hi, Rafi. This is Josh Paul. Hi, Josh. Shalom Aleichem. Hi, welcome. This is Josh. Okay. That's what it is today. Yeah, apparently so. Okay. So the Chacham Tzvi. has a really hard life. <laughs> he, has a, he has a very, very difficult life. I don't think you have to contend with this, though. That's the only catch. Uh, he has a very, very hard life. And he, um, his first wife and daughter were killed by a cannon. Um, and eventually he moves up north, and he becomes the Rav of Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam, guess what he finds? Followers of Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi is long gone. Shabtai, we, uh, we're, we're in the middle now of the, of the of, we're in the late 1600s, early 1700s, and uh, and Shabtai Tzvi has left his mark, and um, he takes up the mission of Rav Sasportas in becoming a vocally anti-Shabtai Tzvi. He's going to fight every vestige of the influence of this false Messiah, and the the worshippers of Shabtai go underground, and he seeks them out everywhere he can. Um, and he is a controversial leader, and the people don't take to him, many of whom, of course, have their sympathies with Shabtai Tzvi, and eventually he's thrown out of town and he runs away for his life. That was, the, that was what it was to be a, a dignified Rav back in, back in certain times in history. Um, he, uh, he leaves a, 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 lot of, uh, a lot of tremendous work for us. He writes in Chuvas. I'll, I'll cite a couple of his interesting opinions. Um, he also has a famous son. The Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi has a son by the name of Yaakov Emden, who we're also going to meet today. Yeah. So um, among, among his Chuvas, he writes, he cites opinions that, um, you know what an Arev is? Some of us learning Makos this year have learned about an Arev. Do you remember, remember what it is? An Arev is a guarantor of a loan. By the way, if you're ever going to lend 
any significant amount of money, you'd be a fool not to, not to have a guarantor guy. Basically, if the guy who borrowed money from you doesn't pay the money, you can go after the Arif, and he backs up the money. So the Chacham Tzvi has a tshuva, he says that um, if the loan deadline comes up and the lender doesn't try to get his money back, he, he holds that the Arev is potter. The lender has his chance to collect from the Arev, but if he misses his chance, he doesn't have to pay. It's a big chiddish. If you know, if you know about the Choshen Mishpat, it's a, it's a major idea. Uh, he also has another shaila, totally different. Um, somebody asked about creating a golem. We had a whole discussion of the golem of Prague recently. So creating a golem. So the Chacham Tzvi has a fascinating tshuva in which he, he considers the possibility, could a golem count in a minion? Uh, what do you say? Can't say amen. Can't answer amen, exactly. Can't speak. That's one of the qualities of a golem, as we discussed. If we were to take a time ship back, we'd meet some very interesting figures from this period, one of which you just asked about is coming up. Um, this is the time of Rav Yitzchak Lampranti, who, who wrote one of the two famous books called the Pachad Yitzchak. There's a modern or 20th century book called the Pachad Yitzchak as a, as a piece of, uh, as a, let's say, it's a Musr book. A book of Allah and Ashkafa and Musr. I'm not talking about that one. This one is really interesting. The author lived in Italy. He was a doctor, a rav, and a philosopher. And he writes the earliest modern encyclopedia of Torah called the, uh, called the Pachad Yitzchak. It is vast. It covers all of Shas and Poskim, all the major questions that you would have. Uh, and it will become a popular reference book cited by Poskim. If you need, you know, let's say you're looking up an issue and you don't know where to find the major Gemaras, you don't know what to look up, you want to understand certain ideas, uh, this would be a great resource book for you. He did all of this alone, imagine this, without computers, without databases, without assistance. <clears throat> Just a smart guy, smart Rav. Um, these are the days of the fourth of the four Kedoshim that we met. See if you can do this now. Who are the four Achronim called Kadosh? Remember this? We did this a few times. Yeah, I mean, Recently. I know, I who was who? Yehuda Well, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Anasi is a Kadosh, but he's from, he's from the Tan- Tanayim. Uh, I'm talking about Achronim. In this period, we have four figures called the Kadosh. Do you guys know this? Hear this? The Shla Kadosh. Before the Shla, back in Sfat, we had two figures. Famous figures, really obvious. You can figure this out. Daniel, you can do this for us. There is Allah Kadosh. And one who was not so focused on Kabbalah was the Al Shefa Kadosh. Now we're meeting the final one who is the Or Hachaim Kadosh. Ilan asked about him. Or Hachaim Kadosh, who was born in Morocco um, in 1696, makes Aliyah in 1733, um, and 10 years later dies. But yet another one of these. We meet a lot of these figures these days who lead short lives and of immense impact. Um, he writes one of the great commentaries on the Chumash. Um, that he's one of the only achronim included in Mikros Gedolos. Mikros Gedolos is, a, is the standard, let's say we have the red version on the shelves, it's a standard collection of commentaries around the Chumash. So you open it up, you see Rashi and Ibn Ezra and Ramban and the Balaturim, and you have the Orachai Makadosh in most of them. Um, you'll, you'll have it, it's a Kabbalistic perush. Uh, it's fantastic. I'll tell you, in this class, we cited it. Uh, do you remember the story? Who killed? Who killed? Um, Kain. Stop, you know this. Anybody remember this? Who yeah. killed Kain? Yeah. No. 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 I said it wrong. Who killed Havel? Who killed Havel? That's a true question. Who killed Havel and you're going to answer? Kain, right? That's obvious. The Torah says that. Only he didn't. 
Right, that's what you're supposed to say. Good, good reaction. Right, so go look at the Orachai Makadosh on this, and it is, first of all, you read it, you think, right, how come I never saw that? It's one of those commentaries that, perfect. Do you remember who, by the way, do you remember who done it? Who really killed Havel, the first murderer in history? Yeah, go ahead. The earth. The Adama. The land done it. Cain was an accomplice. And it makes perfect sense, and he's medayic from the psukim themselves, and you read it and think, of course. And not only is it clever, but it's also incredibly deep. Meaning it's not just shtick that he's, he's saying, he really develops this whole beautiful piece about how when men sin, it has a, it has a residual effect, it impacts everything around, down to the point it even inflects, it affects the soil. Go ahead. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, it is confusing. Who killed, who killed, uh, who killed the land? Right. The time or the land? Because it's written time. No, it did not. It said, Vayakum, um, it said, Vayakum Kain. Kain gets up, and then, and, and then, and then go look at the psukim and see, see for yourself. Kain gets up, but it doesn't say that he, and, and then it says, he killed him, but it doesn't say who the author of the he is, who the subject is. And according to the Orachai Makadosh, was really the Adama who swallows Hevel into its, uh, into its domain. The, the land has different openings, like when Korach rebels against Moshe, and the land opens up and swallows Korach, so a similar dynamic happens with Hevel. So we're saying the one But don't take it literally, meaning recognize that there's a, I'm telling you that, but I'm telling you also, go look into it and you'll see a fantastic deep perush that brings all kinds, uh, connects all kinds of strands of important ideas together and, uh, and makes you look differently at the whole episode. As many of the Mepharshim will do. So this is, this is the Orachai Makadosh. Now, he lives in Yerushalayim. In Yerushalayim at the time are Karaites. Karaites, you remember, are not friends of the Jews. They are technically halakhically Jewish, but they reject rabbinic authority. And um, they were antagonistic to, these, to the normative community, and they, um, they set a trap. They set a trap in... They set a trap for the Orachayim who they didn't like. They put a bunch of the Rambam. They didn't like the Rambam either. See, the Rambam had... The Rambam had... Um, remember the Rambam fought the Karaites too? So he was one of their enemies. So they took a bunch of the Rambam's Mishnah Torah books and they put them on the floor and then they covered them. And so the um, Orachayim was walking and you realize it, but he walked on the Rambam's books. This is the trap the Karaites set. And then he tripped on them. And um, when he discovered what had happened, legend has it that he said he said a, he said a curse, um, and he said that um, these people should not have a minion anymore in Yerushalayim. He didn't specify what that would mean, but apparently um, most of the Karite members in that in that period died in a very in a very short period after this episode. There is um, this is a legend that I that I found in a few different sources, and when you see it repeated, one wonders if. Maybe it's really true. Remember the 1948, um, we lost where we're sitting right now. This was all no man's land that went as they divided Yerushalayim. Uh, everything to the west went to the Jews in Israel. Everything to the east went to the uh, Jordanians. And Harazesim, the most important cemetery in the world where the Orachai Makadosh is buried, the very bottom there, uh, so that also went to Jordan. And in... in um, 1948, immediately, the Jordanians decided they're going to destroy this old, who cares much about a bunch, bunch of old Jewish graves, they're going to build roads there. And so they sent bulldozers to go, plow over some of the, some of the graves so they could build a new road. 
and the bulldozer bulldozer arrived at the Orachim, his his grave. Uh, the driver was there, and out of nowhere, suddenly, the bulldozer did a backflip. And so he got out, and he was okay, a little injured, but he was okay, and the, they, they, put the, they, they set the uh, bulldozer straight up again, and uh, he went for a second round. And on the second try, he, uh, the bulldozer again turned over, and this time it killed the driver, and um, they left it alone. And actually, you can go visit, and you can see the area was clearly vandalized and destroyed, and they tried to build a road there, and the, his grave remains untouched. So don't mess with Kabbalists. Not a good practice. The, um, speaking of Kabbalists, you asked the other day, um, at the same generation, during the same generation, we find uh, one of the great Jews of all history, Rav Moshe Chaim Utsato, the Ramchal. The dates are 1707 to 1746. He was born in Padua, in Italy, and um, we said this before, but I'll just I'll reinforce it again. Um, how old do you have to be to learn Kabbalah? So everybody knows, and I said there's a source for that. We cited that such an idea in the name of the Shah, but it's not really literally true. Can't be because we know that, like the Ramchal, there were a lot of really important great Jews, some of the greatest Kabbalists of all times. He learned it as a kid, much younger than you. He was a master of Kabbalah. He, uh, in fact, formed a group, and they were very idealistic, revolutionary, in the spirit of the times, messianic spirit of the times, that's what's going on in the, in the 1700s at this point, um, and uh, they want to bring Mashiach, and they make waves, and um, he had great rebbies, he learned under the Pachat Yitzchak, the author of that great encyclopedia, he learned from Rav Moshe Zakuto, um, from 20 years old, our tradition holds that he learned from a Magid, some kind of a spiritual voice gave him instruction. And um, this is a kind of a statement that you'd have to take with a grain of salt by almost anybody else. But when you have a great figure like the Ramchal is embraced by everybody, um, we, t we take such things quite seriously. Now the rabbis, local rabbis, didn't understand that they had a great man in their midst and they condemned him. And it makes sense that they would condemn him. Think about it. You're in the wake of Shabtai Tzvi. People practicing Kabbalah, doing weird things, sounding messianic, it didn't look good. And remember, now you have this almost McCarthyist dynamic. You know, you know who McCarthy was in America? Yeah, you wrote McCarthy? Yeah, wow, we think alike. He was the guy who started the whole thing, the Red Scare. Right, Red Scare, and then America. You, didn't learn, you don't have to learn this stuff in England, do you? But McCarthy was an American senator who decided that he was gonna, he was gonna, um, all these secret commies, these combo pinko, commie pinkos in America, he's gonna, he's gonna smoke them out and discover, discover who they, who they are. Um, that's the, uh, that's, that's McCarthy. And he's going to make sure he discovers every last one of them. And the dynamic there is like a Salem Windshot trial. In fact, Arthur Miller writes, uh, writes his play based, based, um, based on uh, the McCarthyist scourges. But that's the dynamic in Klal Yisrael right now. That they are, they, people don't trust each other, and you have great people, but they look, they look like they're doing something that was uh, not acceptable, and and that was the fate of the Ramchal in his early days. He'd be, ch he, he was chased um, out of Italy. Um, they criticized him. They said, they said that you know you've got several problems. First of all, it sounds like you're following Shabtai's feet. Your writings are too mess messianic. Second of all, you're too young. You're not married. Married people should be the ones to study Kabbalah. You're certainly not old enough to teach Kabbalah. Um, he said, Kabbalah chases me. Uh, I'm not chasing it. Eventually, the Ramchal would write, he was incredibly prolific, 
He wrote some 71 books in his lifetime, um, and they decreed that they should all be put into a Gneza. They should be buried. Um, they put the Ramchal in Nidui. There's a legend, there's a legend that after the excommunication was said, that all 99 of these rabbis died within a year. Um, today, there is in Harnof, there's the World Center for the Preservation of the Ramchal's books, and the studies of the, the study of his Torah. Um, so they learn this. We today have 22 of his books. What are his famous books, the Ramchal's books that we have all over the base Medrash here? Mesila Shisharim. What else? Derech Hashem. Das Tzunos. Many others. Two, Derech Hashem. I brought Hashem to, to, to learn it last year with some students. Uh, it, it's... It describes what we're doing in this world, what was Hashem's purpose in creation, and goes through giving a whole overview of what the Jew does in this world. Mesila Shisharim, which he wrote while he was in Amsterdam, after he left Italy, he was a refugee, went up to Amsterdam. Mesila Shisharim is a step-by-step uh, guidebook teaching you how to be a mensch, how to lead a holy life. Uh, and and in its day, it did not catch on. Today, it's a classic. Today, it's almost uh, it's, it's it's must read. You remember that uh, Ravolbi tells us it's one of the four requirements if you want to graduate yeshiva. It's one of the four things you have to have mastered. Is the Sefer Shisharim? Yeah, yeah. So the, the um, he tells you if you follow the Mesilas Shisharim, the step by step, it's based in the Bryce at the end of Sota of Pinchas Ben Yair. In which you follow it, you can actually potentially attain nevuah. You can become a prophet. In the days past prophecy, I don't know how that works exactly, but that's that's what he writes. The Vilna Gaon, a few years later, after the Ramchal had died, was visiting Amsterdam. Vilna Gaon traveled widely. He was visiting Amsterdam, and um, he found the Vilna Gaon was somebody who who ate books for dinner. I mean, he just consumed them. That was just his personality. That's he. That, that's how he lived and breathed. And um, while he is in Amsterdam. Um, he found an old copy of the Mesilla Shisharim in the Geniza, and he took it out and he read it, and this was his response. He went to the mikveh, he went to his room, he, tre- he dressed in his best Shabbos clothes, and he came out, he said, I need to welcome this book, this is a holy safer, I need to welcome it like Kabbalah Shabbos. Um, the Gra actually writes, the Gra was not a man of, of high praises, not given to exaggerations, but he wrote, I think, one of the greatest pieces of praises that I've heard about anything. He said in the first eight chapters of the Mesilla Isharim, he didn't find one superfluous word. Maybe that doesn't sound like high praise for you and me, but the Gra was somebody who, um, every word of Gemara he stood on, he's one of the great authorities who amends our text of the Gemara, and he, he considers every single word. So when he says there wasn't a, an extra word in the first eight chapters, that was saying quite a lot. Um, he said, if the Ramchal was still alive, I would have gone and made a pilgrimage to visit him. Um, and after the Vilnagon and his uh, Muskamas, his, his, his uh, praise of the Ramchal, after his death, the Ramchal becomes widely popular and wet, read and studied. Um, the Ramchal really becomes, as we know him today, till today, um, he will become probably the primary book, we'll see this, of the Musr movement, of the, uh, of the movement that emphasizes human ethics. He also said something interesting. Anybody you've learned the Ramchal before? Mesilla Shisharim, Derech Derechshev. Among other things, if you notice, his Hebrew is um, beautiful, lush, mastery of the Hebrew language, even from a very young age. And the, that was recognized 
in the end of the 19th century, even by the secularized Zionists, those who were secular in the Zionist movement had this idea, they were led by Ben Yehuda, but he wasn't alone, um, to revamp the Hebrew language. We were just talking about this the other day, and start up having a spoken language. They would call it the modern language of Hebrew, Ivrit. Um, one of their primary sources was, what were the Ramchal's books because his use of Hebrew was so fantastic. They said, well, we'll ignore the Musr, but we'll learn the Hebrew. Yeah. Um, he had a hard life, too. He was a diamond cutter. He was chased out of Padua in Italy and made it to Amsterdam. He was chased after Amsterdam, and he made it to Akko in Eretz Yisrael. And he was only in Akko for four years. One wonders, when did he write 71 books? Um, and four years into his stay in Akko, he and his family um, were uh, destroyed in a cholera epidemic, and they perished, and there are no descendants. Um, he was 39 years old. There's a tradition. We stood there, many of us who was there, we stood there by, by the traditional gravesite of the Ramchal next to Rabbi Akiva, and a, a tradition is based on the beautiful idea that he died at 39, having achieved what most of us could only dream of in one short life, and that Rabbi Akiva, as it were, only began life at the age of 40, so they're complementary souls. Um, that's a tradition, but it doesn't have a foundation, among other things, um, the Arizal didn't identify it because the Arizal went beforehand. Um, and I think I mentioned this to you at the time. There's a place not far from Akko, which was a, which is today an Arab village called Kfar Yassif, inland of Akko in the north. And um, I stood by the place that people think more reasonably was actually his camp, his real camp. Yeah. What's that whole thing with cutting, you know, not the age of three, you know, the child's A new minag that we saw coming out of the spot. Uh, a century or so ago, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a variation on going to the Meiron, going to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Yeah, there has to be a, a, a reason for specifically his grave. Right? I'm sure they give that to you after the fact. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has a long-standing tradition. Um, the final figures I want to talk about, and it's a devastating period, and you're coming, you're joining our class today, Baruch uh, Hashem, this is not characteristic. What we're about, the story I'm about to tell is not characteristic of all of Jewish history, but it's part of the story. Uh, it's a big black eye for us. But um, you have this, these, these days, like you think of the 1700s, you have some of the you have all-star names. You have some of the greatest names, and maybe if I was giving this to you in 10 years from now, after you all became huge Talmud Chachamim and learned all of our classic sources, <coughs> the names I'm about to cite to you would be like baseball stars for an American, or like movie stars for uh, the modern media-obsessed individuals. Like, they're, they're celebrities in the world of Torah. Uh, maybe now they're, they're not as familiar, but I'm going to mention the names of Jonas and Ibeschutz and of Yaakov Emden, uh, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. Rav Jonas and Ibeschutz, his dates are 1690 to 1764. He's this towering figure. He writes classic books. He's a commentator in the Shulchan Aruch. He writes a, a commentary on, um, on, the, uh, on, the, on the Torah called the Yaris Dvash. No, wrong. On Torah, it's called the Tiferes Yonasan. The Yaris Dvash is collected drushes, Kreti Uplati, Uri Batumim. And I can't tell you how frequently it comes up. He's, he's, he's a staple of Jewish learning. He was a Rosh Hashiva. He had over 20,000 students, which was phenomenal back in the day. Um, charismatic and loving and, and popular. He, uh, he uh, has a comment that I, you know how you learn an idea and it becomes part of you? So I have these things I carry around with me. 
you know, remember we learned Rava in the Gemara teaches Rahmana Liba Bai. Hashem wants the hearts. So in commenting on that, meaning don't just fake it. Do whatever you do in life, do with proper kavana. Do it with the, with the, with the right sincerity, and especially in tefillah. Given this idea, Rav Yonasan Abishas has this powerful, simple insight on tefillah. He points out, he said, since the essence of tefillah is what you're feeling in your heart, he suggests that the essence of Shmonasre should be your personal requests, your personal supplications. Because when you're asking Hashem for whatever you're asking for, chances are that's going to be the most heartfelt of your tefillahs, he points out. Uh, I'll just give you a little taste of his Torah. Um, he would be accused of being a secret follower of Shabtai Tzvi. And I mean, sort of all day I've been sort of painting this scene, what's going on in the world, this McCarthyist kind of a feeling in the world of, I don't know, seems like a nice guy, but you know, that shirt and, and everything, maybe he's really a, a secret follower of Shabtai Tzvi. You didn't know who you could trust, and sometimes the accusations were thrown out at great rabbis. And that, that was the case with Jonas and Ibeshutz, I'm going to present the information, I'm going to try not to bias it, and you'll be the judges yourself, whatever it's worth. This was a part of the devastation in the wake of Shabtai Tzvi. The accusations date as early. He was already the main Rav of a huge Jewish community. In the north of Germany, there were three, basically three cities together, Altena, Wandsbeck, and Hamburg. Today it's just Hamburg. You eat the, uh, you eat the, the hamburgers, right? But uh, Hamburg in the north of Germany was a big Jewish community back in the day. And um, he's the Rav. And the, the accusation started as early as 1724. He denied everything. Not, in fact, not, but the next year, there'll be a public excommunication against all, all followers of Shabtai Tzvi. This is wild that this is going on. Shabtai Tzvi died over almost a half a century ago. And there's still, this is the big scourge of the Jewish people, and he signs, he's part of, he's one of the signatories on this letter condemning Shabtai Tzvi and followers of Shabtai Tzvi. Okay. Um, having lost that job, one of the great figures of, of time was Rav Yaakov Emden, who also wanted to be that Rav, and Rav Yonas and Ibeshetz, fair and square, beat him to the job. Um, Rav Emden is the son of, to put him into this cosmos to try to figure out who's who, he's the son of the Chacham Tzvi, Remember, his father was rabidly anti-Shabtai Tzvi and went around trying to fight out anybody who was a follower. Rav Yaakov Emden continued that work. Um, he broadened it too. He suspected um, anybody of following uh, any Kabbalistic practices. Anybody who seemed to be learning Kabbalah in a way that was not standard and anybody who was not prominent. So guess who one of his... Um, targets, one of Yaakov Emden's early targets were, he did not like, and, and Yaakov Emden was, was in the north of, uh, of Europe, um, he went after the Ramchal. He was an early critic of Rab Moshe Chaim Lutzato. He thought that maybe the Ramchal was also a practicer or follower of Shabtai Tzvi, and you know what? It wasn't so far-fetched. In these days, who could blame him for coming to that conclusion? After the Ramchal died, and after he emerged as being the guttle that he obviously was, Rav Yaakov Emden recanted and apologized. And he actually took a minion to his, to his uh, no, he came into the cabinet, he couldn't do that. But he, he tried to probably tried to get Kapara for, for, uh, for, for slighting the memory of the Ramchal. Um, he himself is one of the most prolific writers of all time. He himself studied Kabbalah, but he was uh, in, a, in a category where he could do that. 
Um, he wrote, by the way, um, he wrote the most important commentary, most famous commentary that we have on the on the Sidur. If you ever study the Sidur, the Rabbi Yaakov Emden wrote the Perush till today. He wrote a commentary on Shas. He has Shailas and Shuvas. Um, he did something that almost nobody ever did. Do you know that he wrote his own autobiography? Usually we don't find that. Most of our Gedolim have not written a personal story about themselves. It's also very candid, very open about his life. He had a very difficult life. Say it again. Autobiographies? Tell me who. Who are you thinking of? Gedolim in history. Right, like smaller, not not like a, a posek on halacha or somebody who writes. Say who is it? I didn't hear the name. I didn't hear the name. Wrote an autobiography? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. Show me if you, if you get it to me after class, I'd be interested. I'm not, I'm not familiar. Oh, fine. Or okay. Who's a rabbi? No, he never. He wrote a lot, but not an autobiography. I, I don't think he uh, Yeah, doesn't doesn't register with anything. He has, I know. Bio, he has a lot of biographies. Right, a lot of people write about them, but if he would write a book about himself. That's unusual, what? and and it's very informative. You see, among other things, he had uh, Rav Yaakov Emden had twenty children, sixteen of whom died, uh, predeceased him. You'd think so. Maybe that's where it's coming from. And I, I, I'm certain where Yaakov Emden is an amazing individual. He didn't do it out of vanity and arrogance. I think you're right, though. There's some aspect that, that maybe others would, would avoid it. In his case, he was trying to... Um, clearly, the spirit of the book is that you should learn from his life. He had an unusual, difficult life, and the reader perhaps could come away with some Musa. That's certainly the spirit that it's written in. Um, he was also... He had very radical views. He was uh, still a very strong critic against philosoph philosophical study, and listen to what he said. He claims he has an opinion the Rambam could not have written the Mornevuchim. He is one of the commentaries on the Mornevuchim. He says it didn't come from the Rambam. Interesting. Uh, he has some other radical views. He um, doesn't like Rabbeinu Gershom's ban on polygamy. Takanas Rabbeinu Gershom, we can only have one wife. And... Um, he actually it was it was is a das yachid. He's a is a he's a, a, a minority opinion. Nobody else has his opinion that it's okay for a talmid chacham to have a pilegish, a concubine. He says, after all, the greater the tzaddik, the greater the Sahara and the tzaddikim have a tremendous struggle. So if they had a pilegish, it would make it easier. Was that? Weren't married. We're married. A Pelegish is a quasi-wife, and again, he, he regrets the ban of polygamy, but in theory, if you allow a Pelegish, so that could be in addition to your wife. I, I, that's what most post kings say, what you just said. Rabbi Yaakov Emden had this radical idea. Unless you want two wives, okay, I'll stand <laughs> Fair enough. Um, he has... He has, he's a sharp thinker. I, I, I almost feel bad giving him such you know, little soundbite glimpses of his life. He figures in almost every significant discussion on every topic under the sun. Um, I, I, for example, anybody remembers the first class in Jewish history? I quoted a piece from Yaakov Emden. Um, he has, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it now. He, he writes that um, the most remarkable fact of Jewish history is the fact that we exist. Um, he has, this is one of my favorite all-time lines. He says, it's, get this, get this detail, it's fantastic. 
It's unfortunate that the prohibition, los signo, don't steal, is in the Ten Commandments. Because if it were a minhag, then everybody would keep it. Do <laughs> you realize how that's great? Come on, that's great. Because if it's the Ten Commandments, it's the Dibros, so people reject it. But minhag, suddenly people get very firm over. Very, very fine. He understands human nature. Um, he also says, he, uh, in, in a more serious note, he, he, he opines that we do not mourn Yerushalayim adequately, especially as we become overly comfortable in foreign lands. He says, because we become so comfortable in our respective exiles, this is the main reason for our ongoing persecution. In 1733, he moved to Alten Avansbuk in Hamburg. He lost the job to Ravionos and Ibeschutz. Um, he doesn't want to daven in the main shul. Back in the day, the way it worked is everybody had to daven in the main shul. There were no breakaway minions. And an extraordinary exception was made in his case. He was granted permission by the king of Denmark to have his own private minion, just a minion, no 11th man. And so he did in his house. Um, he also had extraordinary permission. He, was, he had private means. And he owned one of those new contraptions, only a few centuries old, a printing press that we're going to see placed centrally in the story that I'm going to tell now. I'm going to conclude with this story for today. Um, we said already, Shabtai Tzvi followers were all over the place. They were underground, they were your next-door neighbors, you didn't always know. And um, sometimes they were in your own family. There's an opinion that a good majority, meaning over half of the European Jewry these days, were secretly followers of Shabtai Tzvi. Um, and one of the things you have to recognize, those who fought this, uh, we saw Rav Sasportis, Chacham Tzvi, Rav Yaakov Emden, and many others, um, we have to have a certain Akaras for their efforts. Without them, it's very possible that Shabtai Tzvi and the mania would have taken over Klal Yisrael. They were fighting for the survival of Torah and for Emes. And therefore you have to understand what about the story I'm about to tell. On a certain Thursday morning, tomorrow's Thursday morning, the year is 1751. They're in the minion in Rav Yaakov Emden's house, his own private minion. Um, after the Kriya Torah, he pounds the bima, and he has just printed out what he claims are absolute proofs that Rav Yonasan Ibeshutz down the block is a secret follower of Shabtai Tzvi. Um, this is based on cameos, these little amulets that were very common. People wore kamea as uh, we call it a good luck charm, but they were much more powerful than that. Kabbalistic codes that were, were worn for different, if you had maladies, if you needed a shidduch for other kinds of reasons. And they were cameos that had been written by Ravionos and Ibishetz. That was not in question. And he found encoded in the cameos secret codes saying things like Shabtai Mashiach. I, by the way, I took a course on this. On this, I'm condensing some of some some of the ideas. Um, these are, this these this is incendiary material. The um, the accusations go viral, not just around Altona Vansburg, Han, Han, Hamburg, but these are international figures of prestige and importance. And um, people read the book, read read what Rav Yaakov Emden's writing. Rav Yonas and Ibeshetz reads it too, and he writes a book, not a letter, a book in response to defending himself. Some say the book only partially vindicates himself against the accusations. The um, attack will lead into an out-and-out -out brawl between Jews that lasts between 1750 and 1764. 
They actually lived around the corner from one another. Many of the leading rabbis from around Europe start to weigh in. It seems that most of them, most of the big names, Yeshua, Nodbi Yehuda, eventually even the, the Vilna Gona was very small, very young at this point, seem to take the side of Rav Yaakov Emden. Doesn't look so good for Jonas and Ibeshutz, who has his defenders too. Uh, all of this, imagine the impact this is having going a little over time, you'll forgive me, um, will have a devastating effect on rabbinic authority. You understand why the reform Jews broke away. They said, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't respect the rabbis anymore, so I'm going to go. These rabbis were all fighting L'Shem Shemayim, whatever, whatever we might think. Uh, they were fighting people, fa- different factions fought, they took it to the streets. Um, in a couple of incidences in, in Denmark, they had, to clo- ha- they had to close Hamburg's trade center because the Jews were fighting. Um, the rabbis each lived in danger. There were threats on their lives. Uh, people pulled their sons out of yeshivas. Uh, people would meet... Co- uh, keep, if you kept kosher across the street and you, fo- you followed this side of the controversy, they didn't trust your kashus and vice versa. Mikvahs were puzzled. Families split apart. People drew knives. It's possible people were murdered in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the conflict that ensues. Upshot, nothing. Why do I tell this story? Because it happened, and it's part of the tapestry that we're weaving, and our guests, I apologize, you're coming in the middle. This is really the middle of the story because we're really getting to the real punchline. In the coming class, we've been talking about um, the big scandal to break apart Klal Yisrael in the coming years, which, of course, is Hasidic Misnagdim, the Hasidic movement and the revolution, and you don't understand that unless you understand what comes before. And that's why this is a piece of the puzzle. In the end, our tradition has vindicated everybody. All of these are gedolim, and we simply, we don't have, we don't have terutzim. We don't know how to, how to justify it, but Jonas and Eibeshetz's works are classics till today. And it's rejected that he was a, he was a, um, a, a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. But the same is said about Rav Yaakov Emden and, Rav, and, and the Pnei Yoshua and, and, and really all the other figures in the story. Um, there's a concern in telling the story. You know, some people use the story against the Torah establishment. Ah, look at all that infighting. Look at how they can't even get along together. As I said at the, at the beginning of class, I actually say that it's a way of understanding uh, the difficult times we're living in, the Chevli Mashiach. Uh, the fact that we have conflict in the Orthodox camp today is not a new thing. It's an extension of all of these developments um, as part of our extended Golis. It's um, instructive to understand why sometimes, especially Gedolim, have to stand up and take a stand. And sometimes they fight what seems to us is that's so intolerant. Right, because we're, we're part of the PC world that you can't, you have to be tolerant, and we do have to be tolerant and loving. But what do you do if somebody's going to rise up and say heretical ideas? And there are a lot of such people around that today. Are you going to stand by silently? Are you going to, if they say it in the name of Torah and they want to teach Torah and distort Torah, can you, can you, are you allowed to stand quietly and let it happen? You can't. Sometimes you have to stand up and take a stance and uh, and, and and take a position. And um, fight the Melchemas Hashem. The end of the story is Rav Yaakov Emden dies um, many years after Rav Yonas and Ibeshetz. It's on an Arab Shabbos, and it's so um, last minute that they only have one grave ready, and they have no other alternatives to bury him in. And so, because it's so, the hour is so pressing, Shabbos is around the corner, they bury him, and it turns out, and you can visit it till today up in Hamburg, um, it's 15 graves away from Rav Yonas and Ibeshetz. So they'll be buried there for perpetuity until Mashiach comes. Uh, There's a tradition, a Hasidic tradition, that explains that um, in the end, 
moments before Rav Yaakov Emden dies, he accepted Rav Yonas Hanayvashetz. And they explained because um, enemies could not possibly be buried so close together. Kaddish Baruch wouldn't have permitted it. And so that's, that has to be the upshot, the end of the story um, that will continue Bezrash Hashem in our next episode.